Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. CFRU 93.3 FM is pleased to work with the Central Student Association to broadcast live noon-hour concerts throughout October. Participating performers include the Wilderness of Manitoba, Jennifer Castle, Royal Canoe, Doug Paisley, and more. All shows take place at the University Center Courtyard, an accessible space at the University of Guelph, between noon and 1 p.m., and all are welcome to attend. For complete schedule details and performer bios, visit sundaycinema.ca and tune in live at 93.3 FM or CFRU.ca. CFRU, tuning in the neighborhood. I've been working for the man Someone come and take my hand Creative Control with Vish I'm going to try to keep this brief because this episode is longer than usual. I present for you an extensive chat with Will Oldham, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Billy, about, uh, well, ostensibly about his new record, Singer's Grave, A Sea of Tongues, but we get into a whole lot of stuff, like a ton of stuff about Will, and uh, I enjoy the chat. I always do. It's such an honor and a pleasure to get to speak with Will, and I hope you enjoy it as well. You're going to hear a new song, by the way, from the uh, new album, Singer's Grave, A Sea of Tongues, out now on Drag City, and uh, that's it. Here it is, myself, Will Oldham. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerottis, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread. Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Thank you. 
to say goodbye before we meet. It's not who I am, it's who I'll never be. Bonnie Prince Billy is the long-held moniker of the esteemed and uncompromising songwriter, singer, actor, producer, and musician Will Oldham, who hails from Louisville, Kentucky. Over the past 20 years, he has been remarkably prolific and displayed an astonishing dedication to the quality of his craft, which is ostensibly folk, rock, or country music of the highest level. He has been something of a shapeshifter, working under different names like Palace Brothers, Palace Music, Palace Contribution, Bonnie Billy, and his own given name, Will Oldham. He has also collaborated with different backing bands and hundreds of other artists, and worked with many record labels outside of his core partnership with Drag City. Oldham also has a fluid relationship with his own work, often reinterpreting, re-recording, and in a sense, re-releasing his own songs in different forms. In 2011, he put out a record called Wolfroy Goes to Town, and his new album, Singer's Grave, A Sea of Tongues, which is out now via Drag City, recalls songs from those Wolfroy sessions. Uh, here now to discuss some of these things is Will Oldham. Hi, Will. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Where in the world good. are you? I'm sitting on my sofa right this moment, although I'm sure I will pace and wander, and only afterwards it'll be like the family circus, you know, those old family circus cartoons where you see the the tracks of where the children have gone over the course of a period of time. Yeah, the the, the well, I think the tracks were not me. They were like the ghosts. Like they were the made-up... What was it? How did it work with the family circus? The it, kids would make up yeah, characters? Yeah, there was, there was. There was not me, but but there were a fair amount of, of actual tracks of, of the actual paths of the children. Yes, you're right, um, now that I think about it. <laughs> and so I, I usually... Uh, I'm sure over the course of this conversation, I will probably weed the garden, uh, hang around with my dog, walk in the front, walk in the back, you know, just be all over the house, and I won't realize it until after it's all... All done. Oh, cool. Well, that's good. But it's Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky, yeah. Louisville, Kentucky, and things are good there? <laughs> uh, the weather is good. <laughs> how's, how's the city of Louisville? I just had, uh, I spoke with, uh, who did I speak to recently? I guess I spoke to Britt Walford, and I spoke to Brian McMahon. Uh, Brian Mc, I talked to the people from Slint about, about Louisville. Yep. How did that, that treat you? I think it went rather well. Good. I've kind of heard conflicting reports about what it might be like to speak with them, but I had a good time. Yeah. Yeah. They are, they are, those are two of my oldest friends, but, you know, conversa- well, and, and conversations with Brian are usually, well, yeah, they can, these conversations can go a variety of directions, including nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought we we seemed to have a good time. We uh we, we talked about Louisville a bunch and learned something. I, I was I was just intrigued by Louisville and the history of Louisville and their history with it. Um yeah. So we learned a few things. It was good. And I I hope maybe maybe throughout our conversation today we might learn some things about Louisville, but I I do want to ask about this this record and as I mentioned in my rather lengthy introduction, Wolfroy goes to town is kind of well, there's a relationship between that record and and Singer's Grave, A Sea of Tongues. Can you talk about why you've sort of revisited those sessions? I guess yeah, it was really interesting hearing your yeah your 
you know that that sort of description or summary or or interpretation of what this record is because i i think from the beginning in making this uh it's always occurred to me that it's it's that it's essentially like an alternate reality or like uh i when i was a kid i read the my older brother, you know, and I would, would divide among ourselves different um, aspects of culture. You know, he would claim his territory, and then I would get what's left. And he claimed Mad Magazine, and I got Cracked Magazine. <laughs> and he claimed the, the Marvel Universe, so I got the DC Universe. And I, I, I embraced my, you know, I was like, Cracked, it's better than Mad. And DC, it's better than Marvel. But in the DC Universe, I don't know if you ever read comics as a kid or as an adult, as as Perhaps too many adults seem to be reading comics and watching superhero movies these days, so maybe that could inform you. But there, you know, there was these two. Well, there were an infinite number of, of of Earths in DC. Yeah, there was an Earth one and an Earth two specifically, and and they did a great. You know, it was it was I, I you know they had this thing where the DC universe moved forward in Earth one, and then they decided like, why did we you know discard all this these great characters and storylines, well, let's, let's bring them back. But we have to, in order to bring them back, we have to create a parallel universe for them. And that is what earth two was so that you could have two green lanterns and you could have two flashes and you could have two Superman's and two Batman's. It was a bizarro world, wasn't it? There was also a bizarro world, but this was a straight up, like there, instead of, you know, uh, what's, Part of you know popular awareness these days is the Justice League of America, which was Wonder Woman, Superman, the Manhunter from Mars, and Aquaman. And but prior to that, there was a previous group called the Justice Society of America. It was just this. It was the same. It's just a different. You know, there was an old world and a new world, and they decided to have them coexist by having them exist. Like I think it was the Flash that was the guy who could get from one universe to the other by vibrating his molecules in such a way because the they actually the two universes occupied the same space but at a different sort of vibrational frequency or uh-huh. some such thing uh-huh. and so things so anyway that's it's that kind of you know i i'm i'm putting into practice the things that i learned from the dc <laughs> universe when i was a teenager or early teens and and that's how i've like i it's never occurred to me that this that this record is any sort of revisitation or anything like that as much as it is going back in time and departing from a point and moving forward in an alternate reality but the way so the way people in my position would receive this record and knowing what you've done a few years ago is to draw that connection you're saying that in some ways they're connected and in other ways they, they really aren't connected in, at all. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, yeah, I don't think that they're connected. They're not, I mean, they're not, yeah, I don't think that they're connected at, at all, except, you know, except, you know, golden age flash was connected to the other flash, but not, but ultimately they weren't, they were totally different things. But they were still. But wait a minute. But when you try to process both flashes, I mean, you probably would. You for just the way we're built, I think the way we're programmed, the original Flash is the one you 
sort of that's the core flash and then every other flash is just like some it just refers to that in your mind anyway no 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 that's not that's not true and i, I guess you it sounds like you aren't fluent with you know no offense but that you're not fluent with the dc universe <laughs> and how it works they, they were they actually had different alter you know the, the original flash came out he wore jeans and a red shirt and a silver helmet like mercury or hermes uh-huh and he had a different alter ego name and it was a different storyline altogether and then they they just decided that they wanted a super fast human being and they wanted to call him the flash and then he was this full red suited guy with a different wife a different alter ego name different story everything was different but so there were these two flashes and the same thing with the green lantern the new one was brown hair with this tight bodysuit and the old one had sort of a baggy suit with a purple cape and he had blonde hair and his his lantern i don't think came from outer space the way the new one did so there's not there are two absolutely different you know someone who grew up with the first one that's the flash and someone who grew up with the second one that's the flash they don't relate you know no neither one neither audience pays attention and and i'm aware that to some extent in the week and a half or whatever this record has been alive and out in the universe that that is happening as well because you know i've seen people and all i know is what people well i know actually some of what people i've played with uh on this record or, or worked with on this record, but people have written about this record already in a way that belies a complete either ignorance of or, or uh, lack of uh, memory of this Wolf Roy Goes to Town record. Right. You know, and is that because they never heard that or is it because there is, too much access to too much music and nobody has time to create a relationship with any given record that comes out, you know, that's come out in the last 10 or 15 years. It's some combination of those things. Okay. I so, think. So in summation, each of these records is a different flash. Each of the, well, also one thing, you know, another thing that I've thought about, uh, there's been a couple of, you know, of course there are, movies that get remade, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are, in, there are, every once in a while, I, I think most movies that get remade get remade by different people. You know, they're, the original people responsible for the movie were not involved with the remake of the movie. However, there is a small and significant tradition of filmmakers who have revisited movies that they've made and made a new movie with the same character's story and or title. Mm -hmm. um, and they might do that 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years apart, you know, from the original uh, movie to the, what could be called a remake. But the audiences, especially these people like uh, uh, the Japanese director, Yasujiro Ozu, or the German guy who came over to the States and made his big splash in Hollywood, Douglas Sirk, they made movies at a time when you couldn't re you know, there was no, you couldn't re-see a movie very easily. So a movie after 5, 10, 15 years would fade, for the most part, fade into the past and nobody would remember it or know that it existed. And then, so they, so these guys, they 
remade sort of sort of remade movies or they they mined the same material i guess and re-released made new movies based on the material that they'd begun with in the first place right right but but for a new audience the audience wasn't never you know i don't think the audience that was going to the movie theater would think like oh this is a remake of this movie that was you know came out 30 years ago that I don't know anybody who ever saw it or has ever spoken of it. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't realize existed, uh, you know, people just like, Oh, here's a new movie. And the new movies were successful and the old movies were successful. And what's their relationship? Is that, you know, what is, what is, uh, that's, that's sort of like as much as the flash or more, that's sort of perhaps what these are. It's, it's sort of using the same source material. Okay, so you're you're and bringing it into a completely different environment with with you know different time, different time of year, different uh, method of recording, and even you know uh, allowing for different you know the, the songs to be broken down and rebuilt, or or even gone back in certain cases to earlier forms of those songs. So, by extension, we we live in an age where tons of records are remastered and reissued for anniversaries or whatever. Are you saying that the, in, in some ways, I think what you're saying is that temporal, it's like the temporal reception, or temporality makes things new again, <laughs> somehow. Like, the first Ramones album, when it came out, was reached one audience, but then when they reissued it, it reached a whole other audience, and so in a sense, by... No. Your, no? No, that because that's no. Well, that's not a creative act. That's just all about getting more money for the same thing. Right. Okay. That's, uh, a- that's not, you know that's that's. I mean, I, I yeah, that's just basically saying, oh shit, we don't have anything to make any money right now. Uh, let's just put this thing out again because it won't cost us a thing to do. You know, uh, let's just re put this out, and it won't. You know, we don't have to invest any money in it whatsoever, except in and sort of pressing it and we'll just make money hand over fist because we know people are suckers and we'll buy it again, even though they could already buy it for cheaper than we're selling it right now. And it will sound as good or better. Right. Okay. So that's not really what's going on here. Not the same thing. We are maybe talking about definitive versions of songs. I think there's a weird relationship between songs and the performance of songs and records between fans, between artists. Do you think that too much emphasis is placed on, you know, official albums holding the, definitive version of any given song is there an emphasis put on that well i think that sometimes people when they see a band they love live they'll be like oh it wasn't quite like the record you know or um or in in your case in your case when you're you know there's i don't know how many different versions of certain songs that are out there that you've re-recorded in a sense and they have totally different feelings you know different vibes um, but there are people who would only think, well, that's not the same as the first time I heard it and the first time he put it out. That's it, It's it's different. I don't know if it's... A, it's it's definitely not the same, but th- there is maybe a qualitative judgment that happens there as well. It could be. I guess I don't... I can't identify with that kind of audience, so I don't know how hmm. they think or why they think. You know, I, I guess I was talking to somebody yesterday and, and uh, sort of realized a way of... of, of uh, expressing something that I'd never been able to verbalize before, which is that you know, what, if I go to see a uh, an artist that I like a lot or a group that I like a lot, uh, I there are no songs that I want to hear. 
I want to, you know, I want to experience the, the creativity of, you know, the, I want to experience, yeah, the creativity uh, uh, and the creative energy of, of the of the performer as opposed to their ability to replay something. I, I, I want to yeah. see them make something rather than see them, you know, I can go home and listen to the definitive version if I want to. And I don't need to go to a, you know, an unpleasant public environment and spend more money to stand with a group of strangers to watch somebody try to do something that I can do better using their own record they put out and that I already paid for. <laughs> I go out to these places to, to see them, you know, create and that's those are the kinds of shows that you know that are exciting whether it's whether they play a set of material that i have no familiarity with whatsoever when it you know comes to the songs and the structure of the songs themselves or if they hit a song that i didn't care about or that i care about i'm I'm assuming that they're going to be giving something that has relationship you know that's going to illustrate the time has passed between the writing the recording and this performance uh the time has passed, if nothing else, if it's not a group, different group of people, or the fact that they're playing in a room in here in Louisville, Kentucky, or wherever, that that's going to make that the experience of being in the same room and have and music is happening, that that's going to make it, you know, exciting. I agree with valuable. you. I agree with you completely. I never. I, people ask me the same thing. You know, well, I hope they are like. Do you think they'll play this song? And I'm like, I don't care. You know, I I, yeah. I, I know that song. I could listen to it at home. I'd, I'd rather just see someone do something completely unexpected. That's why you're going to that. That's why you left your house. Right. Yeah, exactly. So so but, do you, do you? but as a fan of music and even within your own, your own work, do you acknowledge that there might be definitive versions of songs, like the, the version of the song that uh, you know that maybe someone's put on a record is that the definitive version or or is the uh... i i don't no i don't uh, yeah i don't think so I, you know I, I i don't think so uh i think uh there's you know examples also like um so there's this you know so cat stevens yusuf islam has you know, three, three, three records of three sort of new studio records that have come out in the last ten years or so since he took a whatever couple decade hiatus. Yeah. The first one has incorporated significantly and deeply into the record elements of old songs of his that are that, and he uses those to create new songs and he's done that a lot in the last 10 years of, of recording and making music he you know he he like he does I think I see the light on his record an, an other cup and he also takes elements from the song from the foreigner suite from the foreigner record and puts those in another song and nobody you know I don't know how I mean I the the existence of those recordings sort of, uh, I don't know, di- dilute that question because what is, the, there isn't a, how do you, you know, what, like the idea of there being a definitive version of a song when a song is proven in this instance to be sort of a, a living thing that it can be 
reinterpreted and revisited, especially by the person who, you know, brought it to the world in the first place. Or, you know, think of like, you know, it's a, it's a live record and, and we looked, you know, we think, oh, of course it's a live record. So it's different. But, you know, if you think of like um, Bob Dylan's uh, Hard Rain that has one too many mornings on it and he's got, you know, one too many mornings was originally on whatever record it was. Sometimes they are changed maybe. Yeah. And how great, how great, you know, both of those things are, those, those songs and they're both definitive things. They're both definitive performances of, of a song and, and arrangements. And so what is the, de- what is the definitive version of that song? Uh, it, obviously there isn't such a thing. Yeah. I think there's some, the, the, the sort of blurry area here, the gray area here is that I think when people hold a document in their hand and they've been given mm-hmm. the document and it's sort of been pushed through official channels, they assume that this is what they were meant to hear. And, mm-hmm. and I feel yeah. like that rubs up against Going what happens that. then with these two one too many mornings? Yeah, exactly. I I personally prefer the version on the uh, you know that bootleg, the Royal Albert Hall, the one with the band. Well, I, I don't even. I haven't even heard that one. I'm talking about the one on the live Hard Rain record, which was also a, a I think a televised show from Colorado or something like that from about 1975 or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, I don't know. I haven't heard the Albert Hall one that you're talking about, so I don't know. In a sense, the, the hard, yeah, I, I, the the slippery slope, I suppose, is between the live experience and the and and the updated experience versus the origin. I feel like we're a lot. Uh, we're the way we operate sometimes is that the original thing is the best thing, so that even when a band reforms but they don't have the same bass player, there's a certain segment of the population that's like, oh, it's not the same. But I think that part of yeah, I, I think that yeah, that's 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 right, and it also de- depends upon whether or not something has been. If there's a reason for recreating something, you know, if the reason is simply you know like a band reforms the Pixies or whoever, and is is like a remaster. It's essentially they are providing this copy. Uh, they, I I think you know you like they they the, the fans are going to go and they want to hear their the Pixies records, you know, played as close to the sound of a Pixies record as possible. Just like if you buy the remastered Exile on Main Street, you just want Exile on Main Street. That's it. You want, you know, you're not, you don't want anything else except for Exile on Main Street. Yeah. But when, but when, you know, when you hear these other, when you hear like this, I, I'm excited about the Yusuf Islam stuff. A lot of people probably aren't, but I, or, but I like that. Or, or, you know, on another level, kind of altogether, you know, I loved, when I was a kid, at the same time I was reading these comics, I was listening to Ramon's records and you know how they would do, uh, uh usually about one cover, yeah. um, Every, for, for a record. Yeah. And I love, you know, I loved all of, you know, and some of them I had heard before I'd heard the originals and some of them I hadn't, but I always loved the covers that they chose, at least on their first four or five records. And then, you know, and then I would hear the original and be excited about it, but think, but I, my loyalty was to the Ramones version of like Time Has Come Today or A Little Bit of Soul. Yeah. Those were, and, and they did it for a reason. There's a reason that they re-recorded, they love those songs. They, they love those songs, but there's a reason that they re-recorded them. And that's, I identified with the reason as opposed to, I can't, I'm not an audio engineer, so I can't really identify with the remastering of a record or the or the 
reperforming of a song as close to a recording as possible in a live situation because I can't identify with that. I would think if you're going to play a song again, it's because you are allowing the song to be informed by something or you, you want to bring something to it, you know, because ideally you think, I did it. Uh, you know, that part is done and now let's move forward with it. Yeah. If we can. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I, I do, th- I, I just, I appreciate your response to this because I'm, I think that you've, I, I'm trying to wrestle, I'm wrestling with this too. When, when, when someone sees these, these two records, which you say aren't really related, but they see similar song titles and they see, they hear similar structures. You're saying that that's, not necessarily meaningless, but it's not as meaningful as we maybe are attributing the connection. You know, it's not, it's not as, it's not as connected as we think. It's, it's the the way that, you know, and, and I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't think it all the way through I, because I was excited about doing it, you know, and I didn't want to think it all the way through because if I thought it all the way through, then I, potentially would have been satisfied with the results of the thought process as opposed to the results of the, you know, actual uh, accomplishment. But I'm, I, one of the things that, uh, that it it isn't, it, it really is kind of as if it's starting from, you know, as if like I was put in a, like a hand solo cryogenic freeze maybe six months prior to the making of Wolf Roy Goes to Town and then allowed five years to pass or however many years, three years, and then taken out and like, aren't you going to make this record? Oh, yeah, I've got to make this record. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, where are we going to make it? And how are the songs? And okay, let's okay, let's make it. And then it ends up this other thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it... it, it, it uh, and 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 also I, I I've been excited by the way in which you know there there's been times over the years when people have asked questions in 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 these situations you know about approaching records and and thinking like you know and I know that I've said things about how you know a record is a product of so many things including the people the musicians involved and the in, recording engineers involved and time uh, and the time of year and if the room has windows and if the recording session began at 9 a.m. or 2 p.m. or, you know, all of these different things. And, and, and here all of a sudden I have like this example of, of that. Yeah. Um, that it's, it's an example of with in a different, you know, the experiment is that with, you know, here's, here's like in the process of making this record, you know, at first Emmett wasn't going to play on. I was just going to, you know, I was talking to Mark Nevers who recorded the record and, and he's like, Oh, I know this great Australian guitar player. And, and then as it got closer, I, you know, I've been working so much with him and I was just that let's bring Emmett in. You know, I think it'll be great to bring Emmett in. And so I said to Emmett, Emmett, I'm going to, uh, I've got a session book with Mark to make a new record. Do you want to do it? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to send you the songs, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll send them in the mail to you in a couple of days. So I put all of the, you know, I made demos of all the songs and sent him a disc with demos of all the songs and said, uh, and wrote a note on the outside. To just, and, you know, I didn't tell him anything. I just said, you know, here's the 
the new record. And I just on the note, I just said, before you play this, uh, just, you know, take a moment, you know, be quiet for a second and say, uh, say to yourself, you know, I've never heard any of these songs before. I don't know these songs. And he did that, but he didn't know why he was doing it because I didn't give him any clues as to why he was doing that. Huh. And and then and each time he listened to it, that's what he did. So that we never, uh, it, 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 so we never talked about it after that. We never talked about having any relationship to these songs other than the fact that these were new songs we were making a record from. Hmm. And then my brother, Paul, who mastered, you know, masters most of my records and Master Wolf War Goes to Town, Mark Mark said, you know, Mark, because Mark wanted this to be a completion of the trilogy that he said began with Mastering Everyone and went on with Lie Down in the Light. He wasn't counting uh, Greatest Palace Music and this. And he's like, we've got to have Paul, because Paul was on, you know, play bass on these other two records. I said, okay. So I, you know, gave Paul all the songs, didn't say anything to him. Didn't say anything to him. Didn't even give him that note that I gave to Emmett. Right. We recorded it. You know, he eventually mastered it. And to this day, he has not mentioned anything about a relationship between the two records. Hmm. And to this day, I couldn't tell you 100% why that is. Like, I couldn't <laughs> tell you 100%. Because he wasn't a part of the session of the other record. He, was just, he just mastered it. So he may have listened to it completely, you know, from this mastering engineer's point of view and not gotten deep into it, he may not have recognized any of the songs for all I know. Or he may have and just thought, I don't want to talk about this because it's a cool experiment. Or he may have thought, I don't want to talk about this because my brother's going insane and I, you know, that's going to be the white elephant in the room it, it, uh, or the gorilla on the coffee table or whatever. It was interesting, the gorilla on the coffee table, is that a thing? I don't know. Is a white elephant in the room? That's what I, that, it, when it, when I, after I said the white elephant in the room, I thought, is that a metaphor or did I just, or is that like drunks with DTs? Don't they see white elephants or is that pink I think elephant? it's the elephant in the room. I don't know that it's necessarily yeah. a white elephant. And I've not, right. I've not heard gorillas on the, what was it? Gorillas on the coffee table? Gorilla on the coffee table. <laughs> Isn't that nice? It's a good one. I like that one, actually. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> things, things get awkward. Um, <laughs> I uh all right well I I I do I will say that I had a very similar experience um to your brother in the sense that I put on the new record and I didn't recognize it but then certain lyrics and phrases came through Yeah I, I mean for I was going to ask you about this and I might as well do it now when Wolfroy yeah. came came out I I received this very interesting promotional item it, and I believe it was a bumper sticker it was a bumper sticker sized sticker and I've yeah. not I've not applied it to my bumper, but it said "fuck birds in the bushes." Yeah, and that's a line in the song "Quail and Dumplings," which yeah again came out in 2011, and now it's here again. And I was just going to yeah. ask you about the significance of that phrase for you because it's a cool phrase, but I just wanted to ask you why uh, of all the lyrics that was highlighted. But I will say, like once I heard that, and some of the other words, like I just suddenly lyrics started popping up, and I was like, "This sounds very familiar." And yeah, I, but otherwise it was in an unfamiliar package. Yeah. I mean, it was the same, like when I, I sent the record to, uh, uh, you know, to drag city and I, I just said, you know, I didn't tell them anything about it. You know, I just said, here it is. And it was, you know, int- int- interesting, uh, he- hearing back from them. Um, <laughs> fuck birds in the bushes. I, you know, I think, I think 
I singled that out as the bumper sticker, and the bumper sticker is patterned after like a an AA bumper sticker. It's the same color and font as a one day at a time bumper sticker. Oh, I see. But I think at some point, and we made a little uh, like cell phone video of it that was might still even be on the Drag City website of when Emmett and Shazad Ismaili and I were mixing the record. First, you know, at one point we'd looped a, a section because we were trying to isolate something or, or understand something sonically that was going on and it happened to be the phrase fuck birds in the bushes and we just kept it going for uh, like a half an hour and just we just danced around and, and sang fuck birds in the bushes you know the three of us <laughs> um so i think that made the phrase stick out uh even even more but it is a you know it i don't know it's a i think it's a phrase it's a phrase that has stayed with me and that one day may be my tramp stamp. <laughs> Either that or a gorilla on the... Co- it should be that, that and then like a tattoo of a gorilla on a coffee table. I think both of those yeah. together would be good. There's a lyric in um, So Far and Here We Are. Yeah. I- I'm going to recite it for you. Oh, once I had a partner, but now that is done, I live like a king... Mo- and I'm I'm skipping stuff here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, once I had a partner, but now that is done, I live like a king, a monarch who ru- rules over all that he sings. Now, as a fan, I hear allusions to a specific song. I, I hear an allusion to New Partner. I hear allusions uh-huh. to, you know, Palace, Royal Stable, these sorts of things. Sometimes it seems as though you're taking stock of your work in your work. Is that something you need to do? It's. I know that it's, you know, say going from, I know that it's something that I have consistently valued or remarked upon uh, in the works of other people uh, and whether it's, you know, more recently with this use of Islam stuff, as I was talking about, or our, you know, R. Kelly is one of the, the greatest examples of somebody who is con- constantly pulling lines and pulling melodies and pulling characters and images record after record, just reincorporating ideas, uh, you know, throughout his uh, recording history. And in a way that, I, is very valuable. I find I, I love. Uh, you know, I, sometimes I get confused and frustrated by this idea that things have to be new. You know, because it's just like, what's wrong with old? You know, what is wrong with old? Like, <laughs> there's more quality in the past. You know that. You know, than than may ever be produced in the future. Given you know, depending on how long our human culture continues to exist. And, and yet it, there seems to be this imperative for the new, uh, which doesn't, and, and I, and I sort of feel as if, if more, and David Allen Coe is a similar, similar person who would, uh, uh refer to himself a different, you know, there's a Merle Haggard had a, has a song. I think the Oki, Oki from Muskogee's coming home. Willie Nelson used to re-record or probably still does his, his songs time and again and might turn them into medleys or or wildly or subtly rearrange them. Um, but just the this idea there was a when I was a kid I also read the Ian Fleming, the James Bond books and there was a great uh in The Spy Who Loved Me I never realized. Did you read that book? Um I have a really old pressing printing of that particular book. It's weird that yeah. you brought that up. But yeah, I do I and I read it when I was a little kid. I got it at a garage sale or something. 
Um, and do you remember what's different about that book from all of the other books? Uh, no, not at the moment. So it's it's the reason it's called The Spy Who Loved Me is because it's written from the point of view of somebody else. It's it's like in the first person, I think, of a woman oh, yeah. who in the first maybe third of the book, uh, she's involved with mobsters and she's maybe in the Catskills or something like that and she's kidnapped and at a certain point in the book, you know, the door to the motel opens and this guy comes in and we realize that it's James Bond. Oh. Um, and it's awesome. It's like this amazing moment because that's, you know, it's like, yeah, there's a reason these other books came before. There's a reason that this book is happening now because this book wouldn't, you know, that moment wouldn't have had any value if there wasn't already a James Bond. But because there was, it's got this huge power and it's super fun. It's so much fun having James Bond walk in the door at that moment. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to reread so that. I got to reread that. I don't, I don't, re yeah. I, it's not, it's not coming to me right now, but that's amazing. That's, yeah. The, the movie is nothing, you know, I don't think the movie has any, any, you know, plot similarities or characters, except maybe Jaws, maybe that, the guy, the big Richard yeah. Peel guy, Yeah. his character might be in it, but I think he's just sort of a gangster's thug dude. Hmm. Uh, as opposed to this semi supervillain that he becomes in that and in Moonraker. But it's so yeah, it's 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 though, you know, feeling like rather than give the same you know, give the same the exact same things, try to understand that there's you know that there's a value in 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 trying to build on my relationship and on any, any given listener's relationship and on any given collaborator's relationship to these songs to build on that at the same time trying, you know, I, I like that, uh, so far and here we are song a lot. And I feel like it, you know, has the potential to have its, its own life separate from, uh, you know, separate from anything that's happened before, you know, the songs that it references or, or ideas that it references. And, and I have always thought of that song, you know, it, it was built upon like a musical bass that came from uh, old Bahamas uh, recording, like a, you know, maybe like a John Lomax Bahamas recording from 1935 or so. Oh, okay. And then thrown in together with, uh, you know, some of the feelings I remember from, from, you know, how I could as a young white American man in the 1980s or 90s or whenever I saw it relate to the characters of that Sean Connery and Michael Caine played in The, the Man Who Would Be King um, in that John Huston movie and you yeah. know, throwing some of that into there as well. So it's, but, it, but, it's, it's, yeah. it is quite... I'm right to suggest that it's it's a fairly direct autobiographical kind of song? Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it, uh, it's, you know, in the I never read the, I think the man who would be King, I, I think it was a short story. Hmm. They, you know, based the movie off of, and I don't know, I don't know how it worked in the, in the uh, movie. It's sort of like the heart of darkness story where it begins with a narrator and then the narrator quickly disappears and it's just the story. And, and in the, the movie, you know, it's, I think it's might be even Christopher Plummer might play Rudyard Kipling. And at the beginning of the movie, he meets these two guys or he meets, yeah, he meets, or a guy comes into the room and I think it's Michael Caine and 
and he says, oh, my God, I haven't seen you in a couple of years, and this is what's happened to you. Tell me. And he retells the story, and that's the movie. Right. So, in, but at the same time, it all, you know, in all likelihood, the whole story comes from the brain of Rudyard Kipling. But he's telling it as if he's telling a real story of him experiencing this telling of another story. And so that's kind of how this song can work because it's, it's, uh, you know, this, the writer of the song, the singer of the song, and then trying to tell, trying to tell a story. But at the, at the end of the day, the whole story came from the same, came, you know, filtered through the same source if it didn't originate in the same source. So I don't know if it's autobiographical. It's fun to think of it when singing it as autobiographical, but at the same time, you know, the the character traits and the circumstances that the character is describing, you know, are, are definitely, uh, they're uh, some sort of overblown or hyper hyper real version of any reality that we could agree upon, I'm sure. I, I feel like the people who follow you, among the things we admire about your work is that you, you do exhibit a certain amount of confidence, and it's never really hit me until just now that just actually referring to yourself as you know as, as palace, uh, you know, <laughs> and and singing about in this case, you know, I live like a king, and even though you're, it's like a character in a song. There is this sort of you. You were among the first people to emerge in the '90s, I think, that had this really obvious confidence with what you were doing. Where does that stem from? I, the, you know, the, the confidence, uh, that is, that, you know, that, that I guess is perceived is, is a, you know, it's a full, it's a full bluff most of the time. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it's, it, I still, I still am very, very confused about, you know, just really stupid, basic things like, the nature and purpose of, of consciousness and existence. And, and so it's just like, well, you know, wh- who maybe, Oh, I think it was, um, a book I read as a teenager. I think it was, it was some Kurt Vonnegut book and, and either it was a line from the book or it was even the, a quote from the beginning. And it said, or maybe it was William Burroughs, uh, you are what you pretend to be. And understanding that, you might as well, you know, that's that's how people get things done is, you know, especially uh, works uh, of the imagination. But but at any given time, it's like, why, how can this person do this thing that I can't imagine doing? And the short answer is just because they're doing it. Right. And so it's wanting, and and then also at any given point in, the history or my my history in making records it's always uh it's it's wanting to make a record that has confidence to it so pushing things as far as they can go and 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 still feel a confidence and no further um so that's why the singing is so significantly different from uh 
like arise therefore to this new record right um i mean i think it's significantly different but at that time i was singing as well as i could possibly sing with confidence and now i think i can sing better with confidence but i didn't want to i didn't want to not sing with confidence so i you know in my brain i could i was doing more than i was doing and i was only letting come out of my mouth what i felt i could you know allow out with a degree of authority so that so that I could defend it, you know, or so that I could do it again or so that I could move forward from it. Yeah. Whereas I think if I start, you know, given a, a tentative step and then made that an official representation of what I was doing, then that's not a lot to stand on. But it, it, within that, you are challenging things. Like we were talking earlier about def- whether or not there are definitive versions of any given songs. I think in your work, you've tended to resist defined identities. You know, I've mentioned that you work under different monikers. You, in a sense, you reimagine your own songs. And again, that's an arguable point at this point. <laughs> but um, within that, I feel like all of this is challenging something. And I'm curious if you can identify that. You you also mentioned confusion and an admission of confusion, which I. I appreciate, but what are you challenging per se? Who are you challenging? What are you challenging in your work? Um, for whatever reason ingrained in me is, 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 you know, I value challenging things and I, or, you know, the challenging of things and I value uh, uh, the deconstruction of things, absolutely not uh, to, uh, you know, I, I don't think that the, the deconstructing of something is more valuable than the thing itself. It's, it's definitely one to 10, you know, steps below the thing itself in terms of having value. So when something is, is simply a challenge, you know, like I never, in the same way that I, when I see somebody on the side of the road holding a candle with a sign that says peace, you know, I just think like, are you serious? Because it's, uh, because it's just like, that's, that's taking away without giving, you know, that's, that's saying the world is wrong, period. Um, as opposed to saying, you know, as opposed to just doing something like going in and, you know, stealing the bullets from, you know, stealing, you know, sabotaging somebody's uh, stockpile of weapons. Right. That's that's peace. It isn't peace to stand on the side of the road with a sign and a candle. That is not peace. Uh, it is peace to steal the power from somebody who has the power to make war. Right. And it's, so you know, it's, it's, it just seems at any given moment, if you have the, if you're doing something, you might, you know, although I'm loath to, to encourage people in their excessive mo- in our excessive multitasking, it's, it does always seem like everything should have more than one value. And I, you know, there are other musics that can do different things and rather than, uh, rather than placate or rather than um, give a danceable groove or something, I like the idea of of encouraging um, uh, encouraging alternate viewpoints or alternate approaches or especially encouraging 
alternate viewpoints or alternate approaches that are already, you know, that are rumbling inside of somebody and, and are just waiting, you know, like if I'm afraid to put one foot in front of the other, if I see somebody else put one foot in the front of the other, I'm, I'm, I have a little more confidence. I can do that too. Right. Uh, right. And so it's that, that idea of, 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 you know, just saying these things are wrong. You don't have to make it your life to point out that these things are wrong, but, but understand that it, it will make, it will most likely make you and somebody else more complete to follow through on a challenge that you sense is worth, you know, is, is worth issuing. Now, among the recent challenges that I'd say you've issued was this hostile radio interview promo for the new album. Um, and I don't know if people have seen this yet, but there's a, there's a, basically it's on, it's on YouTube and you can watch it. And it's a, I believe it is a staged exchange between yourself and a very hapless, but earnest, uh, radio personality. And I'm curious what, what prompted that? Um, uh, like I would say that the, the, the full, uh, I think that, that that recorded exchange still has a lot of potential energy. So and so the full explanation of of it should wait. Okay. A couple of years. Couple of years. <laughs> okay. Because I think it has value as it is. Okay. Uh, yeah. But you are. Can you at least say that you are commenting on? Well, actually, I've read a few things recently about how the new record was promoted, and and the general feeling is that maybe you're not really into promoting your work. But I actually, like I mentioned the bumper sticker earlier, I mentioned the the video just now. There was a Neil Hamburger video that came out a few years ago as well. I feel like you've actually done some really interesting promotional things and and, and artistic things to get the word out about your work. Do you yeah. do you loathe promotion or do you appreciate the challenge again, the challenge of doing it well? I totally appreciate the challenge of doing it well. It's it's you know because I, I, I understand at the beginning you know there's this there was I had this sense you know of kind of loathing it, although a little bit being aware uh, that you know I loved my SST stickers, I loved my. Misfits stickers. I love my Ramon stickers. I, you know, I loved stickers and T-shirts and things like that. And so, thinking, you know, by extension, that's something that I probably should participate in because it has, a, you know, it, it it's related to making people aware of music, either that they haven't heard or even that you have heard. You know, sometimes it's it's having reminders, especially because everybody else is is trying to fill our brain space with you know, un, un, you know, with their, their, their things. Yeah. And you could either say, Oh, that, you know, I don't believe in that and, and step away in which case you're going to leave a vacuum. That's going to be full of things that you probably don't want in your world or in the world of anybody you love, care about, or even don't care about. You don't want the, you know, so it's, it's thinking this record, I could say to hell with that. I don't believe in the PR and the publicity or, and, and then, you know, let everybody else take advantage of the fact that you've stepped away and, and to do their, to do their thing and to forget about your record and to not, you know, and have, 
you have to be aware that you are when you make a record, you're entering into a, an agreement and a relationship with all the you know with with once the record is made or, or or once you're talking about the record as something that's completed and is to be uh, presented to the world in some way. So not talking about the mastering engineers and recording engineers and musicians, etc., but talking about distributors and stores, you're you're entering into an agreement with them that you know there's a where you know you're I feel a responsibility to say I you know I respect what you do and I hope that you have a relationship with this record that carries forward to an audience and in order for you to have a relationship with this record you need certain things and you need uh, you need to have tools and these tools are and what what are these tools and people will say oh you just have to whatever you have to make a video you have to do an interview you have to uh, announce the record in some way and to think like how many times I read those things or see those things and just it you know makes me not want to hear thankfully most records that <laughs> that I, that are, are promoted in these ways but then I think you know the people that I'm working with need to have these tools uh, and so how can you know how do you participate in that and do it in such a way that that is you know there's something that you you can live with and look forward to doing and and you know look forward to other people participating in so that you know if you see that sticker the fuck birds in the bushes sticker you know i'm you know i'm happy that you have that sticker you know i loved making that sticker and I love the fact that the sticker exists and I love it whenever I see it. And then when you bring it up, I love it even more. <laughs> and the same with the, you know, the same with this interview or the same with the Neil Hamburger videos or the, we did, you know, we did the Tim and Eric videos for the, the wear record. Right. Were right. Incredible. You know, like, and the process of making them is, is great. And then the, you know, the, the end thing is great. And then it also gives the people that, you know, essentially I'm continuing to collaborate with as the record is out in the world. It gives them something, you know, pleasant to deal with when they're trying to also deal with this record and have it contribute to their life and livelihood. So making, yeah, I, it, yeah, I, at first it's like, oh man, I just want to make records. And then it's realizing like, well, I want to make a living making records. I want to participate in a community of people that are making records, making music, playing live. And these are the necessary evils. And you can make them, you know, you can, we can, you know, we can love evil or we can hate evil. You know, like you, we love Darth Vader and we, you know, we hate uh, David Berman's dad. I don't know. Things, things like, <laughs> you, know, things, things, you know, things where you, you make, you know, you, if this thing is evil, we can, you know, something that we can rally around and still, still, say oh you know this was a, a respite from the the normally oppressive evil and this is actually sort of a an enticing exciting seductive satisfying evil you, you did say something i think that was you said a few things that were interesting there but one thing that caught my ear was uh that on some level you're like i'd just rather be making records but you are very self-aware and i'm curious if that self-awareness is ever detrimental to your practice this the, the sort of thinking about all of the the way you're presented as opposed to just putting something out there 
Um, as I say, is that detrimental? It, it may be uh, at times, although there, most of the time I'm, you know, painfully aware of and, and depressed by my lack of uh, what I, you know, refer to as my RAM, um, the random access memory, you know, the bit like when I, when I see people who, uh, oh, who was I listening? To? Oh, I was listening to uh, what's it, Mark Maron's uh, uh, Robin Williams interview, and how Robin Williams seemed to have just such, you know, his brain worked so fast, and he had such great access to uh, thoughts and memories and reflections and interpretations and 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 timing and humor and all these things at once, and I just thought, oh wow, you know. I'd love to have a brain that could access all the stuff that I've put inside of it. You know, I've read so many books, I've seen so many movies, I've met great people and had great conversations. And most of the time I, I completely forget that all of that exists and, and that I ever encountered it because I have such a limited capacity, uh, mm. you know, thought capacity. But the saving grace of that is that I can only really, I, there's not a lot I can think about at any given time. And so, the self-awareness really only comes about when it's, you know, when we go to make a record again and it's time then to promote the record, it's only then that I realize, oh yeah, we have to promote this record. Um, there's no point, you know, I'm sure that subconsciously I'm remembering things and and potentially even constructing ideas you know, that I'm just not aware of whatsoever. But in general, when it comes time to uh, for a record to be released, that's when I remember all of a sudden, oh, yeah, what about? What about interviews? What about T-shirts? What about posters? What about all these things? I mm. guess, shit, we have to think about all that stuff. <laughs> and and then and then it begin then the thought process begins on those things. So that it, you know, and and I think a lot about it, but I don't think about it until until that moment. It's funny to hear. Yeah. You- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's funny to hear you say that. Just that, that you know, sometimes you wish you you had uh, Robin Williams' acts. In the course of this conversation, you've talked about the Justice League, Star Wars, James Bond, um, <laughs> so many films, podcasts. I just feel like there's a lot going on there, and it's all it's all there. You're accessing it. It's there. Uh, <laughs> well, it's there, but 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 it's um you know it's I'm I'm reacting to you, and you know I, I always value the conversations that we have because I, I appreciate, you know, you, 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 uh, 
inspire more brain activity than a lot of uh, people with whom I have conversations. So that's one of the things that I've always liked about talking to you is, is that all of a sudden it's like you have an ability to shine a light on, on all these things that have been lodged deep in the brain at one point or another. And, and I, I, you know, I, I value the opportunity to bring some of those out and so, you know, so that they don't become cancerous or even worse, just become <laughs> covered with dust and, you know, rendered useless just through negligence. <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that, and uh, I appreciate your, you know, being so forthcoming. Now, I did want to, I, I started off by suggesting I want to learn more about Louisville and your life in Louisville, but I feel like we've covered some of it in terms of comic books, music. You mentioned the Ramones and uh, Misfits. I mean, those were... But, but, but weirdly, I, I noticed, as you know, each time that I've referred to these things, that I keep referring to things that are that were part of my world in essentially my early teens. Like in this conversation, yeah, I, we, we have not talked about, or I haven't talked about, I haven't brought up references to anything that happened after, say, 1985, which is <laughs> sort of interesting and sort of disturbing. <laughs> yeah, because I wanted to know what your sort of formative, I mean, this was a formative period for you, but I wondered how we got from, how you got from Louisville to Drag City, for example. I mean, what that trajectory was like, and if you can... Because I don't know that much about how you got from that point to where we are, where we're at essentially now, and I don't expect the whole history. But can you maybe just talk about uh, your upbringing in, in terms of getting into music, and then how you ended up, you know, yeah. working with Drag City? Yeah, my my upbringing, you know, I sort of started to step in. A, like looking back, it, it's I don't think it's. Uh, whatever, presumptuous or pretentious to, to point out because of the way my life has ended up, that it started, you know, in maybe a, in, in arts production, in some sort of uh, performing arts and 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 uh, world, when I think my mom may have seen a flyer in 1978-79 for a, an acting day camp that was run here in Louisville by some, by a woman from here who went off to theater school at Northwestern University, and during her summers, she thought, oh, I'll run an acting day camp, and I started doing that, and then I started, and then she stopped doing that, and, and my folks realized that I liked this, and so they looked for something that was a little more serious and a little more rigorous, and I got into that sort of uh, mode in, in this extracurricular professional theater training program that, and and at the same time, my older brother was in got was getting very involved with the punk rock scene here in Louisville. Uh, and this would have been around the time that there were bands like the the ones that, you know, have records that people could sign now would be the Babylon Dance Band and Malignant Growth. It would have been about around the time that, you know, that Minor Threat was around or okay. Touch and Go was starting. Touch and Go was starting, Discord was starting. Um so I started to become aware of things going on and, you know, the, the exciting things that were happening in Louisville and in underground music through my older brother. And then um, the first, and I would go to see his bands play. He had bands, some uh, Languid and Flaccid was one of the, and that, I mean, Britt and Brian were in Languid and Flaccid with my older brother Ned. And then I remember one day in social studies class in 
1983 or 84, uh, Britt and Brian saying they were going to go see Husker Du play in Newport, Kentucky, you know, one night that week and, you know, asked if I wanted to go. And I said, yeah, and that was sort of the first thing that was, you know, that was like a whatever, a punk rock show that was not, uh, fam, you know, family related. Yeah. That I that I went to, you know, I had I had some awareness of Husker Du just through the walls of my brother's bedroom, and I know that I, you know, I, the, the two songs that I liked of theirs were because I could I could hear a, a lyric were Diane and It's Not Funny Anymore, which are both on Metal Circus, you know, and the rest of it sounded like noise, whatever. I was twelve, and <laughs> and I liked Buddy Holiday, Buddy Holly, and I liked Elvis Presley, and I liked Bing Crosby, and I liked Frank Sinatra, and I liked the Everly Brothers, but I didn't. You know, and I just heard this other stuff from my brother's bedroom. And so then I, but then that sort of began these friendships that, you know, so I would go to school, I would go to my theater school, and then all the other time that I had was spent in this music scene in Louisville. Um, and, but it was, most of it was just, you know, I didn't play any music, I didn't want to play any music, I didn't know how to play any music, my older brother was a really good musician, bass player, guitar player, and singer. And, and I was going to, you know, I would go to the Brit's house and sit through Maurice band practice right. and then Flint band practice uh, and go to different, you know, uh, Ethan Buckler, who's the King Kong guy, had a band called Dot 39, would go and sit through their practice. You know, I just liked going to people's band practices. Mr. Big was another band around that time. I took a lot of pictures at that time just going to tons of shows and going to tons of band practices. And that was, you know, where other people might've gotten into sports, for example. Uh, I, for some reason, liked music and, you know, records, we were into records. So it was the stuff I had to do by law school and then theater and, and music. Right. And then I started getting these acting jobs um, in the theater here. And then, whatever public local public television then a couple of movie jobs and then it came time to to make a decision because i turned 18 and graduated high school thought oh i gotta what am i gonna do i don't know i don't get you know because the the thing you're supposed to do is go to college and i couldn't have cared less about college you know there's nothing in the world that made me you know think that my future was related to a university education especially because i was already making money uh acting um, so, you know, that's why you go to college to figure out how you're going to make a living. And I was, I was making some sort of a living. Right. So I thought, but my folks didn't want to hear anything about anything. You know, that, they were supportive, but at that point they were like, no, you're going to college. And so I tried to go to college and then I hated it. So I thought, let me, you know, let me try to really do acting instead because I can, uh, you know, I, I've proven already to myself that I can make a living at that. It's what I've always wanted to do. Let me try that. And then when I got into that world, it was so foreign and unsatisfying that at least the access that I had at that age, which was 18, 19, 20, was really, it, I just thought, really, this is it? This is, like, this doesn't, you know, my experience with arts production had to do with these plays and movies that I'd been involved with, all of this music that I'd witnessed and then the, you know, books, plays, and movies that I had, you know, witnessed as an audience member. 
Right. And none of none of what I was saying in Los Angeles or New York seemed to relate to the things that I valued in any of those experiences. Hmm. And I was because then it was you know it was agents and auditions and and uh and and I'd never thought about agents and I'd never thought about auditions you know with with the the creativity that I was seeing here in Louisville among musicians nobody was auditioning they were getting together and creating something and and there was no there were you know nobody had managers nobody had booking agents you know nobody was touring or anything like that right the only time people would tour would it would be if a bigger band asked that you know like when Sam Hain asked Maurice to open for them and travel with them and then you know all the booking is taken care of by Sam Haynes booking agent or by Glenn as far as I know he might have booked his own shows I don't know and you went you went on those trips right yeah I went on that I went on that trip or, or I went like when school played up in uh, New York City and uh, uh, which was huge you know because that was that was a big trip uh, for me because it was me and uh, this guy Steve Driesler from here we went up and got to go to Maxwell's and see um, Squirrel Bait played with Dinosaur. This was before Dinosaur was Dinosaur Jr. And they just had one record out on Homestead. Mm-hmm. Squirrel Bait had a record out on Homestead. And then in the, over the course of the weekend, it was that show at Maxwell's in Hoboken. And then the next night was uh, uh, we went to see Sonic Youth with the Necros opening at Irving Plaza. Oh, and Lydia wow. Lynch was there in the audience. And, and Jim Thorwell, Fetus was there in the audience because they were an item at the time, and wow. I was a big fan of both of those people. And you know, it was just like, oh my god! And then, and then the next night, Squirrel Bay played at uh, CBGB's, you know, which you know was just this place, you know, this you know fabled magical place, right. as as New York City was, you know. And I, I so this is experiencing all these things, yeah. So th- so I'm I'm you know I'm witnessing like. For better or for worse, a lot of things happened to me in my growing up where I was taught that you didn't have to tolerate bullshit in order for the some of the most interesting and greatest and most inspiring things to to happen. You know, and so that's an example. You know, like we just went and did that. Or, you know, going to local shows or local band practices and having my mind blown and there was, you know, I didn't have to go through bullshit to do that. I just had to go in someone's basement right. and sit there while a the band played. And so going out to, so I was taught, unfortunately, on some, you know, sometimes I wish I had a higher tolerance for bullshit, you know, but I go to Los Angeles and I'm like, what? You know, I'm, I'm supposed to do what? I'm supposed to go, re- you know, you really want me to read for this part? I don't, like, I don't, why? Why would I read for this part? Uh, you know, I'd, I've, you know, it would be, you know, I'd rather go into my friend's basement than to go to this casting agent's room and, you know, sit there and read for this part that I don't even think I want to play, in, you know, in the first place. I mean, you, you created an outlet for yourself uh, and uh, gathered that, uh, you know, making music was a way to assert your independence as much as anything else. You know, you obviously have this artistic expression within you, but have you been able to do something similar in, with your, uh, you know, theatrical background with, with, with acting, I guess? Well, I, I think what, you know, the, 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 the theory that I've come up with over the, over the years is that 
then, you know, when I realized that there was nothing for me in this in this profession, and I still believe this, you know, there's nothing for me in this, you know, real in the in the real professional acting world because there's so much involved that I don't mesh don't mesh with. And and then I was, you know, ultimately I found this place where these things came together, where, you know, everything that I learned and experienced through contact with the music community here, in addition to, you know, at the same time learning about whatever, stage management and rehearsal and being on time and, and, you know, and getting bodies in seats and when performances were and, and, you know, having exposure to a variety of different kinds of, uh, texts that they, you know, that they, these, all these things came together to make this thing that I do now and have done for 20 years that it's, uh, and, and then when they are, you know, every once in a while, there's the chance to do something that's sort of, you know, cinematically theatrical or theatrically cinematic, specifically in a traditional sort of way, meaning like play a part in Old Joy or play a part in uh, David Patrick Lowry's short film Pioneer. And, and because, of, you know, there's certain things that all of the Bonnie Prince billing doesn't uh, tap into or fulfill. Yeah. And every once in a while doing those things helps sort of complete the, you know, to a greater extent, complete the potentiality of what I could be doing. Yeah. You mentioned that you, you wish you were, or that rather that you were raised to not take bullshit. And you also mentioned that your brothers played music. Was was your family structure supportive of uh, of your pursuits, and obviously they were supportive, or were they supportive of your brother's pursuits? Were you guys rebelling, or were you being ushered into these it realms? Was, no, no, it was, it was, it was kind of a. We weren't getting arrested. There was. I don't think that my. I think my folks were supportive, but I don't think there was any way for them to understand uh what i was doing especially within the uh they didn't have any experience to draw upon in order to understand what was going on with the music community in louisville for example if i was going to band practices you know they didn't have an experience of any of these kinds of music and this kind of uh diy production you know uh so I think they sort of vaguely knew the parents of some, you know, Britton Bryan's parents, for example, or Dave Powell's parents, for example, or Steve Driesler's mom, and understood that there was no, you know, insidiousness uh, that they, they needed to specifically be worried about. And so it was, you know, it's, they, they were respectful and, and loving folks that, without being negligent, I'd say kept a distance. Yeah. Uh, so they, you know, and, and because then, you know, we were, as long as we did okay in school, I guess. And, and as I say, didn't get arrested. And I was pretty much straight edge until I graduated high school more or less. So that stuff wasn't going on. So it wasn't like, yeah, they weren't, they weren't very, 
participatory. They they allowed these great things to happen, but they they weren't really guiding them. I think they were additionally uh, fortunate that good things happen were happening to their kids. You know, in the in the in the same way that I had all these, you know, whether you know whether it's participating in the making of the John Sayles movie Mate One or going on the tour with Glenn Danzig or or being around, you know, being around as things were happening, you know, as, as yeah. like being, being on the periphery, you know, being aware of and on the periphery of things like Dinosaur beginning and Big Black, you know, going into Rape Man, uh, going into Electrical Audio and Schlack, you know, this is very fortunate. These are very fortunate things to have happened. Uh, and in that way, I think my folks were similarly, you know, things were just lining up that their, that their kids were exposed to things that were more good for them than bad for them. Because there's no way that my folks could have said, like, we really want you to meet this fledgling, you know, record producer, musician, Steve Albini. You know, they couldn't have said that. <laughs> or had any way whatsoever to appreciate it and understand it or most of the time even be aware of that it was happening. But it was happening. And they reaped some of the benefits of that as well because somehow the stars aligned and, and interesting and inspiring and cool things were happening to their kids so they didn't have to worry about their kids. I, I like that there's this community of parents that uh, is kind of laid back in that sense. There's this Slint documentary, Breadcrumb Trail, and we learn a lot about yeah. the parents of the members of the bands and, and how, I, I guess, Slint, you, most of Slint, Slint's practices happened in Brit's parents' basement, right? Exactly, yeah. And that's amazing. Like that's and like as a kid as as a kid trying to make music, like it was always such a struggle to find parents who would tolerate it. We eventually did. Um Yeah. But that yeah. is I think that's bigger than we realize. Um Yeah. There yeah, I mean Ron and Charlotte were amazing and supportive and you know, I still always am filled with glee when I run into them, you know, on the street and because they were always great and always always supportive and and uh they were yeah they were crucial for sure yeah now i want to ask you about something that people bring this up to me all the time um because they know i'm a fan of his work and that i've spoken to him a couple of times uh you mentioned his father a little while ago uh, when's the last mm -hmm. time you were in touch with david berman I, i'm just curious we're all wondering about david berman and i don't know yeah. I, I know you're friendly with him uh, right yeah uh, we're in touch on a fairly regular basis, and and I and I I'm sure that I brought his father up specifically because there's somebody writing maybe for Mother Jones an article about David and his uh, specifically his relationship with his dad, which has been a big issue. Yeah. Over the last six or seven years. Um, just to contextualize and professionally for, for for David. So to contextualize this a little bit for people who may not know, so David Berman is the uh was the singer and songwriter in a great band called Silver Jews and his father was um is or is he still around? He is. Yeah, he is. He's this conservative fellow. Actually, can you explain it cuz I'm I'm foggy on it too. He's essentially a lobbyist. He's a lobbyist who who his his main work is is just capitalizing on and preying on uh, 
our worst as you know as a as a culture specifically the united states uh, our worst instincts and uh inclinations so he you know he just basically saying like people want to you know eat terrible foods and they want to shoot guns and i'm going to you know capitalize off of that and try to you know try to keep that going because you know it's it's he finds it easier to support our negative inclinations you know than it would be to support any positive striving that we that we might have and and for his part david has began writing about this he had a blog he was doing a blog and he wrote basically about his dad and i i had not known this until as you say 6 or 7 years ago um when he kind of revealed it in a sense um yeah and it's it's you know i i i so there's this guy who's writing a, an article for i think it's for mother jones and and i did uh, i talked to him with david's permission because there's not you know i i you know, it's just if if someone had called me and said, "Do you want? Would you mind if I participated in an interview about the relationship between you and your parents?" I would say, "Absolutely not." But I so I called David and he <laughs> said, "He said, please do, go for it." So okay, okay, you you know, you can't never speak to me again because of things you read in this thing. Yeah, uh, because you told me to to do this, and um, so I would you know on some level I would say let's wait until this article comes out to get a a fuller story because I. I think it will be well researched, and I think it will be well written. Uh, is but is David is, is David okay? Like, what's what's he up to? Like, I I am I I want to phone him. I want to call him and talk to him. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I should just do that because I just want to know what he's again. Well, what, pe- people ask me all the time. Should I just phone him? I mean, it, it depends on how you want to talk to him. He, you know, he's a fairly he, he attends to his email. Um, but you could also, if you want to talk to him on a personal level, I'm not sure how to advise you, especially in this context, but, <laughs> but if you want to talk to him on a professional level, I would say you could, you know, put three sentences together and send it to Catherine at Drag City. Yeah. Um, so I think at this very moment, I think David might be at, in Chicago staying at the Drag City building. Okay. He's done that over the past few months, he's gone and had extended stays up there. And I think he's in the midst of one right now. Is, but and I think he's 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 doing he's doing pretty good, you know. I think the the his concerns over the power that his dad has over society at large and him specifically ha- have been pretty, you know, have overshadowed a lot of things uh, over the past six or seven years in in David's world and. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he lost his mom earlier this year, oh. who he had a strong and loving relationship with. One potentially positive uh, thing that's happened as a result of that is I think it's maybe jarred him a little and and uh, helped uh, reawaken him to a world at large that includes his friends and includes his work. In a in a way that doesn't uh, involve his dad, um, and hopefully that will continue. I mean, I think people have been seeing more of him and hearing more from him, and I think there's the potential that that as as his 
you know, fans and audience members that that we will as well in the future more than we have in in recent years. Okay. And p- partly as a result, probably of of this trauma occurring this year. But you know, that's these are things that happen in our lives. All right. Well, I appreciate you even feeling this because it's not really nothing to do with you. But I just uh, you know him and I miss him. Well, the you know w- one thing that's uh, you know that I didn't that one one. A question that you sort of alluded to, if you didn't directly ask earlier, you know, you were asking about Drag City and yeah, and how I became, you know, how I came from here to being associated with Drag City, and it comes back to David because um, there was, you know, I really, I, I, I still marvel, I, and I know I have this tendency, you know, I know I have a, a narrow vision of the world, and I try constantly to open it up as wide as possible without, you know, uh, without endangering myself. Uh, but I, but I, I marvel at like this period of when I was sort of gave up the pursuit of acting as a career and started working on music. And I know I was, I was listening to records all the time and I was reading all the time, but this was say 90, 91, you know, at that time I didn't know certain things, but, you know, I didn't know, what pay, you know who pavement was for example even right. as much as i was listening to records and and i didn't know uh and you know i i started making some recordings with todd brashear and you know and i sent two songs as a demo to interscope records at the time to see if they wanted to do a seven inch because i didn't know what interscope records was or anything <laughs> like that you know and uh i sent it like to three labels and the interscope was one and, and only like years later did I think like what the who the fuck was I you know like <laughs> what, like what did I think they were, but that one of the labels was Drag City and the only reason I sent it to Drag City was because I'd met this woman named Tanya Small who'd said like oh I want to give you a you know my band Seven Inch and she plays she beats on some boxes or something like that on the Silver Juice single the first one the not yeah. the single but the Seven Inch it's the Diamond of the Reef EP yeah and and I listened to it and I. Loved it, and and I loved everything about it. You know, I loved everything about it. Like, I loved the way that it looked, how many songs were on it, how they sounded, how, you know, the performances on it. I just thought this was great, and I loved the Drag City logo. So when we had these recordings, you know, I sent the demos to uh, Homestead. I guess to Homestead. I think Gerard was still, Gerard Cosloy was still at Homestead. Mm -hmm. I sent it to him, and I sent it to Interscope because this... uh, guy named Robert Nettlecoff was friends with a woman who worked there and, you know, he just gave me her address. And then I sent it to Drag City because I had the Silver Juice 7-inch. I didn't really know anything else about Drag City except for the existence of this 7-inch oh. record. Well, so that's... And I thought, well, this is a cool label and obviously they, they're wanting to put things out that, you know, are very, you know, are, are very pleasing and you know and complicated and and that they seem to have a you know a nice attention to detail because as i said i even like the 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 logo and and yeah so so and then david you know and i first met david face to face i think during the recording of the first palace brothers record he came through louisville with bob nastanovich and Hmm. they came by the house where we were recording and you know just hung out for an hour or so but that was 
So it's all tied in. Yeah, that's David. I I appreciate you calling back to that. You're right. I didn't get a chance to ask the question directly, and I appreciate it because I've never heard that story before. And it's uh, that's kind of that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're talking to him, convey to him that I I'd like to talk to him and I miss him. And I and I I will send a note to people at Drag City because I I think I should finally do. For some reason, it just comes up every few months, and people think of me. They they ask me. Because as I say, I've spoken to him a couple times, and they just like go go find David Berman. <laughs> so yeah, you, you, it would be he is he you know he, he similarly to you know he he is somebody with whom one can have a conversation that one cannot have with anybody else on the planet. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's there are all there are lang there's language used and directions taken in conversation with David that do not happen with, with, uh, with anybody else. And, the, and, and 94% of the time it's for the better. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I've had limited exposure, but I agree. And I'm such a fan of his work that I can see where you're coming from. Um, I want to, I, I don't know why I have this written down here, but I have this question and I, I thought I'd ask it to you. Who's the funniest person to you? Who is someone that you... I know you have a good sense of humor. I don't think it always comes across in your work. It comes across definitely in promotional materials and other things you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And when we talk, I, I, you know, every once in a while, I, I, I appreciate that, uh, you know, you've got a good sense of humor. But who, who is the funniest sort of person to you or the funniest thing? Wow. Hmm, that's a good... See, this is where this is where I'm feeling the the impediment of of my tiny, <laughs> ram, my tiny ram. <laughs> um, you know, like I like the, you know I I know that there are things on, you know, I can I can sense these things hovering around my brain now, saying pick me, pick me, but I I can't see them. <laughs> the, the floodlights are in my eyes, you know. So the the the, the default that I go with is you know is. Specifically, uh, Harpo and Chico Marx. Oh, interesting. Because <laughs> they've all, you know they've always been there. They've always been there for me, and I, you know, and I can't imagine anybody ever fully eclipsing you know h- how crucial they were to the development of my sense of what can be funny or even what can be done in performance. Uh, and and even how reality can you know can be perceived, but but in terms of just being there early on and continuing over the years to provide uh, big laughs and and pure joy, they you know they'd be at the top. And I, I know recently we oh Emmett and I were <laughs> Emmett and I were traveling in the uh, Netherlands a week and a half or so ago and. And taking turns, you know, playing DJ in the van. And we had, it was Emmett, me, a woman from Italy, and two Dutch guys. And at one point, Emmett was uh, DJing, and he was playing some music, and then all of a sudden he starts playing this record uh, by the Frogs. Do you know that? Do you know the record, It's Only Right and Natural by the Frogs? Uh, yeah, I, I know of it. I don't know it intimately. It's, it made me think about funny things, and uh, because... I know that I've probably, you know, if if I've laughed hard, I have laughed hard at that record, uh, <laughs> definitely more than any other, I mean, uh, you know, infinitely more than any other musical record 
but I know that I've laughed myself to tears. It's been years since I have, and this was a really interesting experience listening to this record all of a sudden among strangers because it's it has the potential to be uh, like when you listen to it, it, it isn't ultimately, but it has the potential to be you know one of the more offensive records you could ever hear. Right. <laughs> but by the end of each song, you realize that everything that's been said is in the service of of humor and just you know fucking with your sense of what's what's appropriate and isn't isn't actually offensive like they're they're they don't uh, adopt a stance of like uh, that that is reprehensible at all it's just completely hilarious and then I, I while I was listening to that and and the Dutch people and the Italian woman weren't laughing um, so I was thinking like huh this is so interesting like experiencing this you know every once in a while there'd be a, like a, a little snort from one of the Dutch guys, but otherwise it was, it was just this dead silence. And, <laughs> and I started to think about other things that had made me laugh in the past. And I was thinking about, you know, the first 30 times I listened to the old Steve Martin records, uh, yeah. the wild crazy guy and comedy is not pretty. And, and, uh, um, let's get small specifically. Let's get small. Right. And thinking how, how funny those, those were. And then, then listening to the, um, and, and, you know, the, the hardest that I've laughed in years and years was a couple of years ago. I don't think they, I don't, I haven't dug into my Spiderland box set to really reveal all of the potential hidden treasures in there. But <laughs> one of the things that was undertaken was uh, Lance Bangs had this idea to do a, sort of a director's commentary kind of thing where he had... Britt and Brian and Dave and Todd and me go over to Britt's house now and sit in the basement. And he assembled what amounted to two or three hours of photographs that he uh, projected maybe in sort of a slide projector kind of way, although I'm sure it was a PowerPoint kind of thing. Right. He'd scanned all these photographs and, and, and then just recorded us talking about these photographs. And they were all you know, photog- photographs from the 80s and early 90s. And by the end of that, I felt, I just felt completely wrecked. Like I'd run a marathon <laughs> and like I was going to vomit because I had been laughing so, so long and so hard that my body couldn't handle it anymore. And it was just like leaving just as if I'd just, you know, eaten three sacks of White Castle cheeseburgers or something like that. What kinds of things were you laughing at? Well, that's, I mean, you. I think you could maybe get a sense of some of it from the Breadcrumb Trail documentary. Um, there must be an audio track that I haven't listened to, because I didn't catch that. I'm going to have to listen to that. Uh, well, I know, I mean, I don't know. No, I, I just mean from the, in the documentary, I think you could maybe get a sense of some of the sense of humor that Oh, was. right, yes happening and and there was just you know i think that the i think that there was a kind of uh chemistry that we had that that was very supportive of you know and and of a a collective sense of humor right that you know I, i can get little glimpses out every once in a while in, you know, sometimes when two or three 
of us might be in the same room, but when the five of us were in that room, I, like I say, I hadn't, 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 uh, laughed as, as much, you know, in, in my adult life, I don't think. No, that's really sweet. I gotta say, that's kind of sweet to hear. It was a good experience. (laughs) Well, well, uh, I want to ask you what's next for you. I know you've got a bunch of tour dates coming up in um, an Octo- a couple in October and some in uh, November in Europe and, and, and elsewhere, but yeah. what, what else is going on? Well, these things are kind of... It's... The last month and the next month are... I, 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 before it all began, I, I, I thought, you know, I I want to live through these next couple of months because it's for some reason, all of these different things are happening at at the same time, including the release of this record. But there was a, this trip that Emmett and I did was, I think we did eight shows in seven days where we played as we did when the wonder show of the world first came out, we played venues that were small enough that we didn't have to use PA or use microphone or anything Mm -hmm. and could just sing into the room. Um, which is the best, you know, it's the best way, I, or to me, it's the best way to, to, to perform. At the same time, it, it does, it probably takes a little more energy maybe, or, or it allows you to expend, uh, expend more energy. So, and then there's just the whole brain space that, that is taken up by, you know, trying to successfully execute such a, such a trip. But then there's these little things that have come up so like it's sort of a this is your life's experience in, in some ways where this weekend we're going to play at the, this hardly strictly bluegrass uh, in San Francisco and, and it'll be Don McCarthy, Emmett, me and Dave Ferguson who recorded the Everly Brothers record and recorded the uh, this he's recorded the Must Be Blind single with me and Sweeney and he recorded uh and I, I met him because he was he worked with Johnny Cash and he was he was the engineer on the uh, the Ruben Johnny Cash I see a darkness session that's when I yeah met him so we're dividing this set into three um three parts where we'll do like a little Everly set we'll do a little letting go set and then we'll do a uh, Bonnie Prince Billy Cairo gang set within the course of this this one set and it'll be we'll sort of be in our world and we'll sort of be in Dawn's world because she's Bay area and we'll sort of be in Ferg's world because he's bluegrass and country. And, and there'll be all these performers at this like prime, uh, like John Prine or usually the McCurries or, uh, uh, Tim O'Brien and Sean camp that are you know part of the country and or bluegrass world. And, and, you know, not that anybody's going to give a shit, but we're going to be, you know, sort of playing to all of these little, points of view or audiences. Oh, that's cool. And then what, how do, oh, there's my dog and somehow she got into the front yard. Uh, and then <laughs> as soon as we get off stage, uh, Emmett and I need to catch a plane to go to, uh, Missouri where the next early afternoon we'll play at this, in this men's maximum security prison as Bonnie Prince Billy and the Cairo gang. Oh, wow. And and then the next show after that is the so every once in a while because I'm 
you know, with one sliver of my brain obsessed with Don Everly and with the Everly brothers, but with Don Everly, uh, you know, I looked on the internet a couple months ago for something, just looking at the Don, you know, looking at Don Everly, just whatever, looking it up and read that there's a, at the rock and roll hall of fame, I guess they do an annual tribute week to different, you know, to a different hall of fame member each year, I think. Yeah. Where they do sort of a, a conference or a, or a week of activities and discussions and presentations and then culminating in kind of a tribute show. And I saw that this was happening and it said in this little article that Don Everly was going to be present. Whoa. And I, and I have been, I've tried for years to get an audience with Don Everly. And, you know, to the point where, you know, I know, I know where his house is, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and I, have, I think I've mailed him something and I've talked to people who know him and I, and, and I have, you know, driven by his house. And at one point we were trying, I think Sweeney and I were trying to get him to maybe come and sing when we were doing the, the single at Ferg's because Ferg used to drink with him and hang out with him in the, uh, in the eighties. And, and Ferg even called and, and talked to one of Don's twin Mexican wives. And, and, you know, she, um, we almost got him on the phone, almost got him to come out. Wait, but, well, wait a second. He's got twin Mexican wives. That's, 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 that's I guess, he married a woman who has a twin sister, and they all, they all three live together. And I think they're considerably younger than he is. And, but is uh, he? So, he's not married to both of them. Well, I don't think you can be legally, right? Oh, right. But they're t- wow. That's a wow. Twin Mexican. I'm always. I mean, I, there's so many funny things that I feel like so many funny things. Some of which are true, and some of which, of course, aren't <laughs> true. That I feel like I could be always saying about Don Everly, but I'm I'm scared of you know of somehow fouling up a potential interaction with him, which still may never happen, but, but yeah. we're getting closer and closer because then I, you know, I, I, I wrote, I figured out a way, uh, you know, I wrote to my booking agent and said, if there's any way, you know, I could play it solo or if Don could come or, you know, or, or me and Emmett could do it or me and Emmett and Don or something, if there's any way I could just, you know, because we've made this record, have access to that room where Don Everly is going to be, because my relationship with Don Everly is the way a lot of people have a relationship, you know, with whatever, with like Bob Dylan, where if they were standing next to him at a fruit market and he said, you know, this grapefruit is, you know, it's getting kind of soft on this side, they'd just be like, oh my God, I'm going to go home and write that down. <laughs> like, I wouldn't, I don't think I would do that with Bob Dylan, but with Don Everly, I think I would, you know, right. I'd just be like, yeah, it was weird. He held this grapefruit <laughs> and he noticed that it was soft on the, on the bottom side. And... So I just want to be in this room. And then subsequent research, I found out that Rodney Crowell was the musical director and I called Ferg and I was like, do you know Rodney Crowell? And he said, yeah, I know Rodney. So he called Rodney and put in a good word for us. And so we, we got to where we're going to be what, somehow. You, on You're going to play? Show. You're going to play? Yeah, we're we're going to play, yeah. And, and Don Everly is supposed to be there and supposedly he's not going to perform, but then maybe he will. And, you know, I just... You know the, the you know the level of potential interaction that you know is possible is anywhere from zero to a hundred, and I'm going to guess that it's going to fall somewhere around thirty or thirty-five in terms of the intensity. Like maybe I'll get to shake his hand. I don't know. Wow. Maybe not. But maybe I'll even just 
watch him while he watches people perform, you know, and see what he reacts to. Because I, my sense of him is that he's very musical in a, in a way that I value. So, you know, I'm going to be sitting there watching his eyes for, you know, when his pupils dilate, if somebody hits a harmony or chooses a particular song from the Everly Brothers repertoire and see, like, what excites him and what bores him, for example. This I mean, is, all I can, all speculation at this point. Yeah, all, all I'll say is I just hope that he, I hope he's there, but I also hope mm-hmm. he, I hope he cares. Because I get the, I'm not sure that at this point he might, I just don't know. I have no idea of how much he cares about stuff. Um, and I don't, I don't, know. I don't know either. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't, I don't, if he goes, I don't know why he'd go. Uh, right, right. But my sense is that he always cared about the music he was making kind of more than any other aspect of what he was doing. So I think that's probably, I think part of the reason that we, don't hear from him is because there's not a way for somebody who only cares about the music to engage in popular culture if you know at a certain point because it's it's just like well i could just go up there and you know i i'm I'm gonna there's so much crap i'd have to deal with and i'd rather live inside my own mind because he also impresses me as somebody who probably has a very active mind for better or for worse that he may at different times in his life uh, have retreated into. Right. And not that he wouldn't care in the way that, you know, I don't, you know, the way that somebody else who's had great success might not care and might just say, like Bill Withers. Yeah. Um, you know, who, who it seems as if the way that he doesn't care is is profoundly uninteresting to me. You know, watching that Still Bill yeah. documentary, just like, wow, this guy, as much as engaged as I am in his, compositions from his early career this guy couldn't be farther you know is, is as far from me as um you know the singer from poison is in terms of approach <laughs> to music or understanding of music and, and potentially even farther i don't know right but i don't think that that's the case with you know and again this is my fantasy world my imagination i don't know anything about don everly's inner life when it comes down to it it's all speculation and it's all fantasy i really really uh, you know i really hope this works out for you i hope that you you <laughs> en- you end up satisfied with, with with whatever happens the main thing that we want that you know my biggest thing that i want to do that is that is realistic assuming he shows up is and i think that i've convinced rodney crowell that you know that this you know i think together i think he, he's of a mind he's, he's in agreement i want to i want us to pr- perform uh, Don's song Omaha for Don. Oh, amazing! Because I think that I think it's a significant. It's a, I think it's a great song. I think it's a significant song, and I think that the the way it relates to his musical life. I just I don't know. I just I, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to perform that song for for Don. And I think Rodney Crowell has said, you know, I think that would be great because most people are going to be playing crying in the rain and walk right back and bye bye love and it would be nice to have a a well-rounded yeah evening and it's a great song you know i feel like confident that it's a great enough song that the audience won't be you know bored or disgruntled i if think they have to sit through this four minute song i think you got a lot of your bases covered there you got all the bases covered i think you're going to do well 
I think. Uh, I hope. So. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, we were me and Ferg and Van Campbell, who have played, who plays drums, played a lot with, and Sweeney and Emmett are all going overseas in November. So we're going to do this big set that has uh, like Super Wolf songs and Cairo Gang songs, and and it'll be the first time that Matt and Emmett have, you know significantly performed together over the course of a period of time so that's like i say it's sort of this it's sort of a this is your life end of end of year time right now well that's good and you're playing chicago on halloween yeah solo set solo set in chicago on halloween with bitch and bajas are playing on that bill uh and the reason for the show is there's this group called manual i think they're called manual cinema and they're kind of a shadow puppet group uh, based out of Chicago who's having I think maybe their fifth year anniversary and they they're putting on this show and they've asked this music to happen alongside so there will be an you know a, a dynamic and theatrical visual element to the show as well as bringing it all back to the second home of Chicago where Drag City is and yeah and where David Berman might be hopefully he'll be there yeah <laughs> he, he he's bouncing back and forth between Nashville and Chicago and his wife is actually she's from here in Louisville and she's just started graduate school here so she's here so oh, okay better chance than ever that I that that we'll sit down to a meal in, in over the next year more yeah yeah more than months well I want to say to people who've been listening once again the latest album by Bonnie Prince Billy is Singer's Grave a Sea of Tongues and it's available now via Drag City Records he is playing San Francisco on October 5th and Chicago on October 31st, as we established Halloween, and then tours across Europe in November before playing Nashville on November 24th. We didn't talk about yeah. Nashville, but that'll, that's, is that, that'll be fun. Is that special? That's just, we're, we're it's sort of like, a, that'll be, as soon as we finish the European trip, we come back here and just thought, because Ferg is, Dave Ferguson is going to be part of the band and thought it would be great, you know, will be will be tight ideally at that point and presentable to, to play to Ferg's community, which is, you know, the Nashville music community, his friends and peers and colleagues. Oh, nice. And to, to have a show there where they can come out and he can, he can say, well, see, these are the young, you know, the young rap scallions that I've been spending my time with when I'm not doing the straight down the line country and bluegrass stuff and but they know it some you know we we hang out with his his pals sometimes and make music together sometimes but to to have you know people in the audience there and clapping i think will help them acknowledge that our music is real too yeah no it sounds that sounds nice too so yeah so folks can learn all about the the new record and uh these shows at dragcity.com and also at royalstablemusic.com um, well, if there's yeah, just... and then the, the Royal Stable, that the guy who put together the Netherlands trip that Emin and I just did is the the uh, it's not royalstable.com. It's like the it's called the Royal Stable, and it's and he's been running it for years. This guy named Leo uh, Meyer. Yeah, it's got a funny name. That's another, another tons of information on there. Yeah, more than my more than my more than the Royal Stable music has. I know because I I think I'm sure that I haven't put anything on there in about a year and a half. I feel like the, I'm just trying to, how do I convey, I guess just Google Royal Stable, everyone. Otherwise, it's users.bart.nl slash, there's just, I can't. There's, and then there's like a weird insignia thing that I don't even know how to describe that thing. 
Do you know that thing? It's like a it's a wave. I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, it's like a tilde tilde, right? It's tilde. Like that would go above an N in the Spanish language, yeah. That's right, tilde, and then it's L J M E I J E R backslash Oldham. That is the most complicated website I've ever announced, and that's sort of why. But you you link to this guy's site on on uh, RoyalStableMusic.com, right? I think so. I, again, I, you know, uh, another old friend of ours from sixth grade designs websites, and and he designed this website around the time that I was putting out the self released record, and and I honestly haven't looked at it since then. Yeah, I, I, I looked at it. I looked at it today, and and he does uh, he does link to. Uh, so yeah, royalstablemusic.com, go there, and then at the bottom, it says most information, not more information, most information, and then you click here, and then that takes you to the complicated, but very comprehensive, complicated link, but very comprehensive uh, Bonnie Billy stuff. I hope I, yes. I hope I explained that correctly. All right. <laughs> now, uh, so. Will, if there's a song from the new record that we can play for folks right now, uh, which one would it be? And... Uh, and why? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I went to you know Todd Brashear, who runs, uh, who was played bass in Slint, and uh, he runs a video store here called Wild and Willie Video, and he has a weekly appearance on local public radio. And I went, and whenever I have a new record coming out, he he asked me to come and we'll talk to the DJ together and he'll talk about new releases, new video releases. And I'll talk about the new record. And yesterday the DJ asked like, what should I play? And she had brought up the McCrary sisters. Cause there are these, these three women who sing on four or five of the songs on the record. And so I suggested that she play, we are unhappy. It's got big, it's got banjo played by this guy named Richard Bailey. Who's in a band called the steel drivers. And there's great singing from the McCrary's on it. Um, Either that or the, there's a song written by my friend Brian Rich that's on the record called New Black Rich, parentheses, Tusks, that has an amazing guitar solo from Emmett and an amazing fiddle solo from Billy Contreras, who's a Nashville-based fiddle player. Right. So if you want, that's that's slower, and the other one, and, and has one voice on it, the other one is, is uh, has that, you know, the undeniable optimism that comes with a banjo and it has uh these great singers singing sisters in the prairie the undeniable uh, optimism of a song called we are unhappy yes exactly. <laughs> well um well you're putting me in the spot now i have to pick between two i flip a coin flip I, a coin i don't have a coin maybe I, and now my cat really wants to go outside hang on gary i'll be right there um i'm gonna go with uh let's go with we are unhappy i get i feel like that's where your heart was initially okay. That was your instinct. Okay. So this is We Are Unhappy from Singer's Grave, A Sea of Tongues. Well, it's always a tremendous pleasure to speak with you, and I, I thank you for your time, and I you know, I wish you the best of luck, and hopefully we'll uh, see each other soon. I hope so, too. If not, I look forward to the next time we speak, and if there's anything I can do to facilitate a conversation with David Berman, please tell me. <laughs> I might take you up on that. Nothing is better And nothing is best We are unhappy We are unblessed 
faith is destroyed And emptiness showing God's cruelty deployed Lovers have left Friends close their eyes Thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.